the murder mystery podcast. The story unfolds each week. Will you guess the killer? If you would like to have your own copy, or give a gift, Season 1, The Parisian Contract, is now available as an audiobook. Search M.F. Kelleher on Audible. On the Murder Mystery Podcast, it's The Parisian Contract. Episode 20 Guy walks from his flat to meet Richard Carlyle for breakfast. The city seems bright and sunny, he thinks. A passing woman smiles at him, and he returns the connection. His mind has two things uppermost, Alpha and Grace. He trusts Richard to deliver a funding answer for Alpha, but he's worried that Grace won't hold her nerve. She doesn't seem to be at ease with the plans. But it's only another day, and everything will be sorted out. The challenge is to keep her from talking to anyone in the next 24 hours. He didn't hear from her yesterday, and he's starting to wonder if she will crack. He turns the corner and walks through the revolving doors of L'Oiseau Bleu restaurant. The old building has been gutted of its grandeur and replaced with a clean, square interior. His choice, not Richard's. He likes the idea of change, throwing out the time expired. It's the way he has run his life, always moving on, always thinking about big ideas and how to make them real. His friends tell him that sometimes good things are worth keeping. But he knows in his heart that there is always something better around the corner. Richard is late. Guy orders coffee and reads the Financial Times. He likes the image of himself as a businessman more than his days in the Foreign Office as a diplomat. He had never seen himself as a civil servant, even though he liked the secrecy of his cover role in the embassies. When he was a boy, if he had dreamt of anything, it would have been to be a businessman, jetting about the world, doing something that no one else was really clear about. But he didn't dream as a child. He was always too involved with the here and now, knowing that he could throw it all away if anyone started to care too much. He wonders why he enjoys pretending to be something that he isn't, whether it is a coincidence that all his jobs since university have been based on a lie, he doesn't know. But it makes him feel in control, certainly. He sometimes wonders what he'll do in another twenty years. Will the mirage still excite him, like it does today? Sorry. It's the older man. No problem, Richard. Let me order some coffee. Guy raises his hand for service. Good news from my discussions, says Richard. The finance options? I had three conversations with banks yesterday. All are interested in bond funding our bid. These discussions are all confidential, I take it, says Guy. Of course, I have known these financiers for over twenty years. Did they question our motives? They naturally wanted to understand our business plan rationale, says Richard. And what did you say? Even at the higher price, it still makes sense for Montgomery to acquire Alpha due to our portfolio alignment, product set, and geographic footprints. 
our bondholders would get a payment within 12 months and reduce their risk profile. Then we retain the rest of the finance over 10 years and guarantee growth for them. Sounds like you have it worked out, Richard. It's what I've been doing all my life, Guy. This is what makes me get up in the morning. Only one fly in the ointment. Oh? None of the backers will go ahead without Malneath knowing there's a bid in flight. I don't see why Malneath needs to know. Sorry, it's a red line for them, says Richard. They want Malneath to be aware and they're keen to keep him sweet. Why is that? asks Guy. They have other investments in the Glenthrow group already. That may be a problem, says Guy. Let's talk to Jean-Luc, if you and I can't agree. Guy is silent, considering his options. Olivia wakes at 9.30. She has slept through her alarm, which she hates. She doesn't have breakfast, which is a mistake, she thinks, and takes a cab to Montgomery's offices, arriving late for her meeting with Jean-Luc. Marianne is at her desk as Olivia arrives in the executive suite, and the young woman smiles as she walks to her desk. "'Bloody alarm,' says Olivia. "'He's not here.' "'What?' "'Hasn't arrived yet,' says Marianne. "'Is that normal? Highly unusual.' "'Was I his first meeting?' says Olivia. "'No, he had an 8.30 with the HR director. "'And he's not answering his phone?' Marianne shakes her head and raises her eyebrows. "'When did you last speak to him?' asks Olivia. "'Yesterday. He called me about five. Olivia frowns. "'You worried?' says Marianne. "'He is going through the wars. The Cammy thing, Alpha, and Sophie. All of his own doing, of course.' The young woman's harshness surprises Olivia. Yes, he's been an idiot, says Olivia, but everyone deserves a break. He's been doing this for years, though. He's not just an unlucky man. You want to tell me something, says Olivia. You know, the embezzling. But he wasn't convicted. He did do it, though. Marianne's voice rises on the air. What was your motivation for going to the police about that? asks Olivia. Like I said, it was wrong. There are rules, aren't there? Sure, but what drove you to risk everything and shop your boss? The young woman's eyes water to Olivia's surprise. What is it, Marianne? Olivia goes up to her and sits on the desk next to the woman. Two tears fall down one cheek and stop near her mouth, and she wipes them away. He's a fucking criminal, Olivia, she sobs. He has been all his life. He doesn't care about anyone. What's happened? I need to get out. You coming? In the street, they turn north and arrive at the gardens of the Musée Rodin. The place is relatively deserted in the early morning. One elderly couple sit on a bench by the entrance on the Rue de Varennes, as they have done every week for the past forty years. His eyes sparkle in the brightness, and her shaking hand holds his more tightly now than when she did as a girl of seventeen, when she first saw him and felt her heart jump. 
Marianne sees them and thinks of her parents. The women walk in silence until Marianne finds a space where she feels comfortable. They sit on a bench in front of a circular pond in the gardens, and Olivia waits. I had a happy childhood, begins Marianne. My brother Vincent is older than me, and most of the time it was just us four. We had a house on the outskirts of Lyon, and I just remember endless summers and the freedom to go anywhere. Sounds perfect. It was, says Marianne. But I grew up watching the town rather than being a part of it. I just went to school, played with my friends, and laughed a lot. Papa was my hero. He had started a company when he was young with a friend of his. They were very successful, making tools, firstly for local farmers, then they grew and started making industrial tools, drills, excavation stuff. They had a huge order from one mining company when I was about 17, and that changed their company forever. But it got so big, Papa worked longer and longer hours, and we never saw him. I didn't care that much then. I was 17 and riding around on scooters all day. But I could tell that Maman was suffering. She started to look tired, but I was no help, as I was too busy being a rebel. I guess it happened without me watching. What did happen? says Olivia. Papa carried on trying to run the company for a couple of years after it grew big. I went off to the Sorbonne, so only came back for holidays, and my life had shifted to Paris. Suddenly, it was as though my childhood had gone. I couldn't wait to get back to Paris whenever I visited. Happens a lot, Marianne. Then they got an offer for his company. Did he want to sell? says Olivia. Not really, but he knew he couldn't run it like he used to. So he sold. We. Oui? The offer made them rich, says Marianne. You don't seem happy about it. The day after the company was sold, a notice went up in the factory, saying it was to be closed down and that jobs moved overseas. Marianne's voice cracks at the thought. And your father didn't know? He'd been promised nothing would change. He was livid and ashamed. Those people were his friends. He'd grown up with them, been seen as their great benefactor, given them jobs. He was their hero as well as mine. She wipes more tears from her face. A month later, he fell ill. His body couldn't take the humiliation. He was dead in a week. I came back from Paris for the funeral. I was expecting hundreds to turn out, as all my life Papa had known everyone in the streets around where we lived. Maman and I arrived at the crematorium. There was no one there. Just us. They couldn't forgive him for selling them out. The women sit. The pond water ripples, bouncing light to the stone statue at its centre. They are lost in their own thoughts, brought together by one story adapting it to the context of their own experiences. I swore on that day that I'd make him proud of me, says Marianne in the clear light. 
How would you do that? By finding the people responsible for killing my father, she says. You mean the company who bought his business? By finding the CEO who made the call to shut the factory. Marianne pauses, wondering if she is ready to say something that has only ever existed inside her own head. A moment's stillness in a busy place. Then the sound rises in her throat. It was Jean-Luc. Olivia's courtroom training takes over and suppresses her instinct to reveal too much of her own humanity in that instant. Working there wasn't just a chance, then, she says. I asked around in employment agencies, found one which was providing staff for Montgomery. The rest was easy, says Marianne. I joined that agency and worked as a personal assistant in a couple of other companies. Then the Jean-Luc job came up, covering for maternity leave. It wasn't difficult to be chosen. Hence the whistle-blowing. That is just the start of it, Olivia. Jean-Luc is seriously corrupt. He is involved in some sort of drugs thing as well. I've heard him on the phone. Are you collecting evidence? I am working on it. It should all work out. Very soon. Richard returns to his hotel and gets out his computer to catch up on emails and prepare the documents for the Jean-Luc meeting. He works quickly and quietly, using his expertise to create the proposal. An email notification sounds, and he selects his inbox from the desktop. The new message is from the office of the finance regulator. He clicks it and reads from the screen. Dear Mr. Carlyle, As Chief Executive Officer of Carlyle Holdings Limited, we hereby notify you of a bid for 100% of your stock capital that has been received by this office from Conigan Industries GmbH. Under the regulations of the market, we ask that you confirm whether this is a mutually agreed acquisition or a hostile approach. As soon as we hear back from you, we will enact our bid support team to work with you and the bidder to a mutually beneficial outcome. Richard stares at the words. His heart beats as though it will burst. In his head, he wants to fight like he has done all these years. He wants to reply immediately and refute the approach and set in motion legal action against Conigan. He wants to, but he's not sure he has it in him any longer. He hangs his head and the laptop clicks onto its screensaver. The taxi drops off Olivia at the entrance of the hospital. She checks a large floor plan on the wall, finds the ward she needs, and sets off on a long walk along wide corridors. She gets lost, walks up a set of stairs, cannot get across to the new building from that floor, and has to retrace her steps to the floor below to get across the bridge to the extension. She finds the ward and asks a nurse for the bed she needs. She is directed to a suite of private side rooms, which are along a narrow corridor. She turns into the corridor, and an armed policeman is standing across the entrance. C'est privé, madame. He puts up a gloved hand. 
Je suis une amie de Grace Hartford, says Olivia. Quel est votre nom? Olivia Street. Un instant, s'il vous plaît, madame. He walks down the corridor and has a whispered conversation, then returns. Allez-y, madame. He raises his gun to let her walk through. She turns the corner into the room. Mademoiselle Street. It is Captain Ferrault. You are connected to this, too. Grace is a friend, Captain. Your name keeps popping up, Mademoiselle. He continues. Your brother's arrest, a missing person who could be dead. And now a young woman is attacked and you witness it. An extraordinary few days, Capitaine, she says. You and I should talk, Mademoiselle. Could I see how my friend is first? He nods formally and raises his arm towards the bed where Grace is lying. I will be outside, Mademoiselle. Grace is sitting up against enormous white pillows with her eyes closed. The purple and yellow bruising on her face extends from her left ear, down her cheek, and across her nose. She opens her bloodshot eyes as Olivia approaches. You got past my personal bodyguard, then, says Grace. They smile at each other. How are you? Battered, as you see. Does it hurt? Not really. They fed me with morphine. Why the guard? says Olivia. The Capitaine thought it would be a good idea after I told him how it happened. They can't identify the bloke, though. Did you see him? Not really. Pushed past me in a flash. Will you be here long? I hope not, says Grace. I have a big day tomorrow. Oh? says Olivia. Grace blushes. Sorry, top secret. Very intriguing. No word from my boss, though, says Grace. It's getting ridiculous. Olivia pauses, then knows she has to speak. Grace, I need to tell you something. What? About David, says Olivia. Yes? A second ticks by, but it feels like a minute for both of them. I don't think he's coming back, says Olivia. I don't understand. David Malneath. Spit it out, woman, says Grace. He may have had an accident, says Olivia with finality. I am in danger, aren't I? No, he was involved with something, says Olivia. What? I don't know, but Max found out. That finance man from your company? asks Grace. Max discovered something about David, and now they're both dead. Dead? says Grace. You said he'd had an accident. Max told me that David had been killed, too. But you only have Max's word for that. Sure, says Olivia. Does Ferro know? I told him David was missing. Max's body has been found, but he hasn't linked them. Who did David get mixed up with? says Grace. I don't know. I'd tell you if I did. Something connected with Glenthrow, you think? 
Sorry, I just don't know, says Olivia. Maybe it was, but maybe David was doing other work. Did the Glenthrow board ever discuss armaments? Guns? Never, says Grace. We're not that sort of company. Manufacturing and mining, that's how it's been since we were formed. When David's father, yes, I know the history, Olivia interrupts. Is that what this is? Gun running? I have no evidence, says the lawyer. But two men have died. You must tell Thoreau what you know, says the COO. You have more information than anyone. I'm not staying under police guard for weeks. I've done nothing wrong. I know nothing about arms trading. Tell them now, before anyone else gets hurt. 